You're listening to Work Tape, episode 88. podcast it is your boy money mitchell we got isaac grooven grover we wrapped up last week a bit of a mini series um discussion on some prolific black music producers and of course on the mount rushmore of black music producers is none other than dr dre and we spent pretty much the entire last episode covering many aspects of dre's career from his early beginnings in NWA, all the way up to his departure from that group. And of course, the stuff with Death Row Records and the Chronic and the Chronic 2001, respectively. And then after, um, or actually, I guess before uh, the Chronic 2001 was really when he started up Aftermath as well, which I had mentioned in the last episode that the big prevalence of Dre is not even necessarily just his music production, which is top notch, but really his ability to cultivate talent and to release things more on his terms, especially within kind of the uh, emerging genre that hip hop was at the time is kind of what I think he's really more known for. And that brings me to, P. Diddy, who, in my honest opinion, was kind of the East Coast, or kind of is the East Coast Dr. Dre. Not necessarily from a production standpoint, because, uh, you know, Diddy was not, you know, in a, a rap group and was not even really DJing, I don't think, really as much. But, you know, both Diddy and Dre have, you know, immaculate ears for production and sampling um and you know both of their careers took off essentially um by them utilizing samples and putting some of the best hip-hop talent that has ever really existed on their records with p diddy it was you know very much bad boy records and the notorious big and lil kim and all that with dre of course you know dre and tupac worked together within the death row camp. So, you know, there's a lot of similarities in regards to their careers and their respective careers from, you know, production side. It's actually very interesting because Isaac and I were both talking before the episode started and we saw the news story that Diddy has to pay Sting $5,000 a day for uh, a sample of uh, one of his songs, which that just goes to show you how critical sample clearances and we had discussed that i think a few episodes even further back um the importance of sample clearance and there you go that is why it is important to have complete clearance of samples that's nearly two million a year yeah nearly basically passively i mean sting doesn't have to do anything to get that money my goodness yeah and actually, that's not the only song that Sting is getting passive income on. Oh, oh, I know. I know that Sting is uh, notorious for uh, these types of things. <laughs> yes. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, Juice World's biggest hit, Rest in Peace, uh, Lucid Dreams. I think Sting got 
at least 70, if not 80% of all generated royalties off of that track as well, which is crazy. Now, the thing about Sting that's really interesting is in regards to him being sampled in regards to his songs being used in that way, he takes the money, but yet he's actually cool with the reinterpretation because I remember, okay, um, I think not too long after Juice World died and Sting went on to do a tiny desk, I believe with Shaggy, uh, which is just a really interesting combination if you think about it. You know, Shaggy being kind of the dance hall reggae artist and Sting, which I guess it kind of makes sense because Sting has a lot of reggae roots, I guess, in uh, his sound, but that's besides the point. When uh, they got together for a tiny desk, Sting would actually do a bit of a medley of Shape of My Heart and Lucid Dreams. So um, I think in a way he did respect like Juice World's take on it, but he's also like, I got to get paid. <laughs> right. He's got to get his payroll in the bottle. <laughs> right. It wasn't like um it wasn't like Jeff Lynn of ELO fame where um he pretty much sued like Sam Smith kind of like out of spite and didn't even necessarily really like the song. And you know, Tom Petty, I think, where you know Sam Smith got sued for the Tom Petty resemblance of won't back down. Tom Petty, I think, was actually gonna let it slide. He was gonna be one of the guys that was gonna be like you know, it's rock music. Right. He didn't want to be petty. He, huh. <laughs> uh, but yeah, and I think, honestly, that's a good position to take sometimes. I think it really depends. I think with the lawsuit thing, I think it's really a case-by-case basis. Very case-by-case. I totally agree with you. I think if you're taking, like, a small portion of the overall song, and if you have the sample clearance, I think that it's cool, you know, because... One of my favorite tracks of last year, Out of Time, by The Weeknd, samples very deliberately a Japanese city pop song, which for those of you who are not on to Japanese city pop, you need to get on it because that music is great. Um, I mean, there's kind of a whole potential breadth of you know music from there as well. But with him, you know, he took a bit of the uh, sample and basically built his song around it. But he gave the but he gave the proper clearance and he gave the songwriters credit. And so that's cool. But if you're deliberately, I don't know, ripping off like the entire melody too, like if you're not just taking the sample, but you're also really biting from the melody, then that's when I, I kind of draw the line. And that's honestly the thing that holds up in court too. The only things that really hold up in court in regards to IP regarding music are like melody and lyric, basically. Chords and drum patterns and all that cannot be trademarked, which thank God, actually, because otherwise the chords would be nonstop busy with, um, you know, I mean, basically, I mean, can you think how many cases just off of like James Brown samples there would be if that was the case? I mean, like, Oh my goodness. Yeah. The most, I had a dream. I think of this drummer. Ah, I forgot what his, was it Stubb? Stubb? Oh, um, Clyde Stubblefield. Yeah. Yeah. Clyde Stubblefield. Yeah. I don't know why I had a dream with Clyde as well as, I mean, Clyde was nowhere to be found, but I had a dream about James. So that's kind of odd, but whatever. It was weird. And I'm like, 
oh yeah your drummer like he never really got paid did he <laughs> no he said. <laughs> no he did no he did not and i laugh but that's a very very i'm like truly depressed oh yeah i mean i know that he just wanted credit but i think it's a pretty i know there wasn't really a law in place yeah especially for drummers i was thinking about this i was realizing how unprotected that drummers are and i get it you know i mean i understand that you shouldn't really be able to copyright a rhythm but i almost feel like you should be able to yeah i mean like i think like signature rhythms yeah like van halen or um stuff by uh copeland i mean i've, I've heard so many drum riffs that are so original i'm like i mean i think that should be copywritten but that's just my opinion yeah I mean, I, I do think, though, that there is a risk in regards to copywriting drum beats and stuff. You do open the floodgates for pretty much. I know, I know. I'm actually glad that you can't copyright drum beats, but I almost feel like it's more like I understand why we don't copyright them. And I think it's good that we don't copyright them. But I'm also like, I think it's kind of messed up that drummers can be some of the most hooky drummers of all time. Oh, yeah. I mean, even Ringo has so many good riffs, but it's like. Sure you as a drummer in a way you kind of miss out on that copywriting aspect of the songwriting and i think it's kind of i get it but i think it's kind of messed up oh of course i mean you know the thing is with both like clyde subblefield and you know even george clinton uh funkadelic which a majority of dre's early hits were pretty much taken from a lot of those funkadelic records mm-hmm because of really just kind of the systems in place in regards to sampling, yeah, I mean, both of them didn't really get much of any real dues in regards to, I mean, at least with George Clinton, like, I think that he got, you know, some more kind of recognition. And of course, more people got put on his music, which, you know, led to, you know, more sales. But yeah, the case with Clyde is really kind of sad in the sense of, him being literally, I think, the most sampled drummer of all time, and to not really see much of a dime from any of the tracks that used his samples. Now, I do think he found some other ways as well. I mean, I was about ready to say, did you dream of Clyde Stubblefield's barbecue sauce too? <laughs> no, I did not. <laughs> because he does have a, a barbecue sauce, so I'm sure he got some money off of that, which like I said, the fact that he had to resort to making a barbecue sauce because... I know, that's what I was thinking. I'm like, but the fact that he had to do that. Even though he's James Brown's drummer, he's not getting as much of the money as James is, is a bit of a thing. But then also, there's actually sample packs that were officially released by, I guess, Clyde Stubblefield or the Clyde Stubblefield Estate or something. Um, I forgot where they were actually posted on, but there actually is a sample pack that you can buy and use in your tracks of, I think, unreleased and new drum breaks and patterns that Clyde recorded. And I think um, if he doesn't get it, because I think he's dead. No, no, he's gone. He's yeah, easily one of the most disrespected artists of all time, but that's just my opinion. Yeah, so he doesn't get it, but at least like his estate does. So in the way that, like, when people buy, I don't know, Jay Dilla drum breaks, how um, the Yancey estate is getting everything. Because, obviously, James has been gone for a little while, too. Mm -hmm. You know, rest in peace. So I guess, for what it's worth, at least uh, the family, 
does yeah get. yeah so yeah i think clyde would be happy with that anyway yeah so no the whole like sampling and the clearance thing is like i said that's why it's really important and that's why i think that it's great that as we talked about you know a couple episodes back how there is so much more option for people to get that sampled record feel but to do it in a way where if the record blows up they're not going to have to give so much of it away and that there's already you know clearance terms in place with you know a lot of these marketplaces such as the drum broker or sample lab or you know kind of pick your poison on that one because i mean just go on youtube and you'll find you know basically a plethora of sample packs and producers and and whatnot and i think there's some very genuinely good stuff on there too so i think that i'll definitely be trying to utilize it for my production in the future but uh but besides the point diddy and dre both big on the music mogul side i mean with dre beats by dre was you know kind of the big venture and it was one of the most successful i think music ventures that was a whole movement in itself right there. The Beats by Dre was pretty much every music video in like the mid to late 2000s. One of the opening shots was literally like the artist wearing the headphones. And it became like kind of the Jordans of headphones, you know, in a way. It was kind of the most like sought after thing for a long time. And if only the actual audio on some of the Beats products was a little bit better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Unless uh, bass bias. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I liked the bass when I was younger, when I didn't know how to mix and I didn't understand what a good mix was. And I used to think, well, this is like high quality. And then I was like, uh, that's extremely bass biased. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's probably why I have tinnitus to this day, too. So, yeah, the thing with the Beats by Dre is like, yeah, exactly. When you're younger and you listen to a pair of the Beats studios or or oh, oh, oh don't, don't even get me started on the Beats Pros, those ones that are like <laughs> that were like five hundred bucks or whatever. Which you listen to those and you're like, oh yeah, you know these are dope or whatever. I'm feeling like you know a professional, and then all of a sudden, very quietly, as you get older, AKG, Sennheiser, and Audio Technica start entering the chat. Don't forget Apple with the AirPod Max. Yeah, but I mean, in terms of the true like audiophile like stuff as your ears get older, I guess, and your audio palette gets older, you start to realize, oh, wait a minute, those AKGs, those Sennheisers, those Audio-Technicas sound actually much, much better, and they're quite a bit cheaper. So, <laughs> Oh, totally. Yeah, I know you're right. It's, um, I mean, I'm not going to hate Andres too much because it was a gateway. Absolutely. It definitely introduced me to the world of higher quality audio. So I, I'm going to give it that much because, I mean, those stock iPod earphones weren't going to cut it, right? <laughs> the earbuds. So, oh, no. Yeah, I mean, back in the day, right? I mean, even today, I right. guess it's kind of the same, but um, right. you pay yeah. a premium for decent ones now. But yes, back then, the Beats were like the thing. But yes, I mean, before Beats were like you were implying actual real headphones that you would use that would be useful and practical, like, you know, AKG and Audio-Technica. Yeah, and then I think that, like, the Beats by Dre thing actually changed how some of those companies actually, like, marketed too. Like, it, it really did disrupt the headphone industry as a whole. Yeah. 
that was like one of the first times that like headphones became a fashion statement and people were buying headphones for like fashionable purposes too. And then of course it changed how some of these older audio companies that had been around for decades, maybe even like half a century before the Dre headphones came out, it changed how they started to market their stuff too. Mm. And so you have like buyer dynamic and whatnot that's appealing to almost like that same kind of demographic, like the kind of like younger demographic, but it's still keeping like the buyer dynamic sound. It's still very much like a, I don't want to say like a real studio headphone, but yeah. But I think you're right though. I, I do think that you brought up a solid point, which is that the Beats by Dre's definitely got a lot of people into higher end audio, especially if like people in our generation, I think. And I think that's a great thing. Right. So it had its purpose. <laughs> yeah. And then I think, you know, Diddy with some of his ventures too, he's done, you know, um, I think, is it Ciroc is his vodka and, you know, whatnot. Of course, rappers have to have an alcohol brand. It seems just about every major one mm -hmm. has some bottle that's specifically for them, you know, whether it's Jay's Ace of Spades or in this case, I think Diddy is Ciroc. The other thing that Diddy did too, I'm not sure if you're aware of this. Have you ever heard of Superphone, Isaac? Maybe, maybe, but not off the top of my head. Okay, so Superphone is a thing where artists basically can communicate with their fans directly via SMS and text messaging. Then I might have heard of this somewhere. Yes. Superphone is basically the direct the direct-to-consumer platform for musicians and artists and creatives. And one of the big peddlers of this, and I think one of the big pioneers, was Ryan Leslie, who Ryan Leslie is incredibly underrated. For those who don't know who Ryan Leslie is, basically he was behind a lot of production of R&B music in the early 2000s. Um, I think he was actually under Diddy's label too, Bad Boy at the time. Okay. But actually, Ryan Leslie is also somewhat connected to Kanye as well um, in regards to some kind of like creative things. Basically, Ryan Leslie, in my opinion, is one of the most successful, truly independent artists of all time because he had basically his music up on the streaming services. And as an independent artist, he removed all of his stuff from, or most of his stuff, I think, from streaming and marketed the music directly to his true fans through the SMS. And basically with marketing his music as well as tickets for his shows, he essentially got to pocket pretty much all of the money. And that's the appeal of this Superphone thing is that, especially as an artist, it allows you to understand like where your true fans are and like i said you directly market to them it's hyper focused marketing yeah exactly and so p diddy was i think one of the really big early adopters of that as well so that's one of the things that is is really big and then of course talking with the subsidiary label thing and kind of concluding on this episode of course we had talked about kendrick and top dog entertainment but specifically, Top Dog in the last couple of years has imploded in some sense of the word, because I think Top Dog had 
a really good run in like the early 2010s, mostly from Kendrick's releases, like, you know, Good Kid and all that. But of course, they also had Isaiah Rashad, uh, Schoolboy Q, and of course, SZA. And the thing that was a little bit tricky with Top Dog, and what at least from what I heard, is that in regards to creative control, not exactly the greatest, um, pun very much intended with SZA's <laughs> album being Control. Um, the reason why SZA took, what was it, five, six years to put out a follow-up album was essentially issues within Top Dog. But I guess she was also going through some things herself. But then also, like I said, just creative control. And I think that might be a big reason why Kendrick is moving away from them too um, after this last album he put out, Mr. Morale. So that kind of goes to show you that like sometimes the subsidiary is not as good as the major label. Mm-hmm. I mean, in most cases, the subsidiary is going to be a little bit better in regards to creative output and creative freedom and whatnot, but it's not always. And I think that's kind of a real good example of that. That's definitely a lesson. It'll be interesting to see with Kendrick departing to his own thing and whatnot. It'll be interesting to see if Top Dog can really stay afloat with the current roster of artists or if they're going to have to really pivot and whatnot but we're going to have to see how that goes. But that's just going to about wrap it up for us here on this episode of Work Tape. Join us next week where we'll start getting into a bit more rock production. We sprinkled in a bits, bits and pieces of talking more about rock and roll production, um, but I definitely want to talk about it more in the next coming weeks, especially with producers such as Butch Vig or even Rick Rubin, too. I feel like Rick Rubin is kind of a a good one to also talk about as well, because he actually kind of has his foot in both worlds. He actually has a foot in hip hop and in rock and roll. Yeah, he does. He's the producer right now. Yeah. And it's very interesting because I feel like he's more of like a vibe guy. Yes. He's more about like, I'm coming in and I'm creating a vibe, basically and consistency but we'll get into that as we and and don't forget steve albini because uh in utero is 30 this year oh yeah oh okay well we gotta maybe touch on in utero too Mm. we can definitely uh segue that i'm sure with just because of course with butch veg i mean is it that one and siamese dream was siamese dream 93 yeah it was 93 yeah yeah so both turned 30 Yeah, so we can definitely talk about it because, I mean, with the Butch Vig episode, I mean, let's be honest, a lot of that is going to be about Nevermind. (laughs) But never mind the details for now. (laughs) But, I mean, Siamese Dream, and I think Butch Vig's also done some Green Day as well, so... He's done, like, almost every important rock album in the last... Well, you get what I'm saying, especially the 90s and early aughts. Yeah, the 90s, early aughts, he was the guy. And the late 80s, too. Oh, I almost forgot. I mean, another rock guy to talk about, of course, would be Brian Eno, too. Yes. So we have some good ones coming up for you guys in regards to music production. So if you are really into music production and maybe getting a closer look or a more in-depth discussion about how some of these albums came about, feel free to tune in uh, for the next couple episodes because we got a great slate ahead for y'all. So uh, once again, it's been Work Tape Podcast. 
your boy, Money Mitchell, Isaac Ruben Grover. Stay hydrated. Peace. <laughs>